law, liberty, and life in Jesus, knowing how it all works. We're at Galatians chapter 3. We're starting at verse 26. I hope you have a Bible with you. At home, get a Bible out. The title for this morning is Christ's Household, Where Guests Become Family. Christ's Household, Where Guests Become Family. Galatians 3, 26 to 29 for starters. You, you jump into the middle of a sentence with Paul a lot because he has humongously long convoluted sentences. And so we're jumping right in the middle of one in verse 26 of chapter 3. Through, for through faith, you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been, these two verbs, have been clothed with Christ. So baptized into Christ, clothed with Christ. I'm going to talk about that. 28. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, interesting, then you are, you are Abraham. He's not writing to Jews, not predominantly. You are Abraham's seed, heirs, according to the promise. That promise given to Abraham so long ago, he writes to these Gentile believers and says, you, you're the heirs of that promise. It, it was for you, that promise. And that must have been a shocking thing to a lot of Jewish readers. This word, this word for at the beginning of verse 26. You have to think a little bit because that for at the beginning of verse 26, it immediately links up with what Paul had just been saying in, in verse 25. Here's what he said there. But since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. And that phrase, under a guardian, that's triggering Paul's thoughts about the law. That guardian, that's the law. And so that launches him into that 26th verse. In other words, verse 26 explains why it is that the law no longer serves as our guardian, not for us. The reason we are no longer under, that's an important word, we're not under the guardian is we are now, through faith in Jesus Christ, we are mature sons and daughters of God. So, so the guardian, the law, it was for a period of, this isn't the right word quite, but a period of babysitting, child care, before we became heirs to the promise that was given to Abraham. And Paul tells us what that promise was. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. This is important. He does not say to seeds, plural, as though referring to many, but referring to one. So who was the seed? The seed of Abraham, who is Christ. 
was Christ. We used to get uh, we used to get babysitters for our daughters. It was appropriate to do so at a certain time in their lives. We don't have to do that anymore. They don't need babysitters. Now that doesn't mean there was anything wrong with the babysitters they had. It's it's just that they've grown up. Probably a better illustration of that term guardian would be that of a like a full-time nanny or a daycare worker, someone hired by the actual parents because they were away or they were unable to be with their children. But if those guardians, if they do their job, they're actually there to prepare the child for the time when the guardian or the nanny or the babysitter just won't be needed anymore. So their work points beyond themselves to when they won't be necessary. All of that picture that I just gave, it's the kind of thing Paul's going to be dealing with in our text. So point number one. Through faith in the promised seed, we already saw that's Jesus Christ. He said not seeds, plural, seed. Through faith in the promised seed, Jesus Christ, we are now in this room in 2022, sons and daughters of God. I want to show you something in a text that offends some people, and it really shouldn't if you understand what Paul is doing. Galatians 3.26, for through faith you are all, it's everybody, and then surprisingly, this masculine sons of God in Jesus Christ. So that little title, 3A, the title Paul uses to describe those of faith in Christ is sons of God. Ladies, before you get upset. This is a classic example of why you need to be very careful about gender-neutral translations that are, that are gender-neutral just for the sake of being politically correct. The Christian Standard Bible that I read from this morning is, is, is really a very, very careful translation. Careful to interpret gender language in the scripture very accurately. Usually sons in the KJV, the old King James Version, will almost always in the CSB, it'll be translated sons and daughters. Almost always, because that's usually what that Greek term sons means. And yet, even the CSB at this place sticks with sons. Paul uses that masculine gender Very specifically in this case, because in that culture, and this is important, in that culture, the eldest male was first in line for the inheritance that would be coming. And Paul's writing about Christians and the inheritance of Christ, and that's why he uses that masculine pronoun, sons of God. The idea isn't to convey maleness but to convey the idea of birthright. It's all about inheritance, what we receive in Christ. He makes it clear he's talking to everyone because he says, you are all 
sons of God. He's talking inheritance. He's not talking gender. And, and that's his key thought here. He's talking about what we have inherited in Jesus Christ. And we're, we're to never for, to forget what that inheritance is. 3.8. Now the scriptures saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles, that's us, mostly, that's us, by faith and proclaimed the gospel ahead of time to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed through you. That's us. All the nations will be blessed. So the promised inheritance is justification. The law, remember the guardian there for a season and then gone when Christ, the inheritance, comes, the law could never deliver anything of an inheritance to anybody. Religion can't deliver anything to anybody. Just as a nanny or a child care worker can't deliver to the child his parents' inheritance, the law, the law all by itself, simply had nothing to bestow on those who were under it. It was no more designed to give the inheritance than a babysitter could give you the parents' inheritance. It's a picture of religion without Christ. You can put a lot of work into it. You can put a lot of effort into it. It can't deliver anything. This is really relevant, this talk that Paul is giving us here. To show the magnitude of what this inheritance is, Paul uses a description of us, talking about us, that we ought to find more shocking than we do. The only reason we don't find it shocking anymore is we've heard it so many times that the edges are all worn off. He calls us sons of God. We are all sons of God, he says. And I labored to, to show it wasn't gender, but inheritance that he's talking about. But he calls us all sons of God. And the thing is, twice in this letter at least, when he talks about son of God, he's not talking about us, he's talking about Jesus. And then he uses the very same term that he uses for Jesus, and he applies it, to Don Horbin. Like that ought to be unbelievable. Look at these texts. But when God, who from my mother's womb set me apart and called me by his grace, this is Paul, was pleased to reveal his son. This is Jesus. Jesus is the son was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I could preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone. Here's again. Look at this. I have been crucified with Christ, yet I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in, see this? Who is that? That's Jesus, the Son of God, 
who loved me, makes it clear he gave himself for me. That has to be Jesus he's talking about. Son of God, Jesus. And then he uses the very same words, sons of God, only he's not talking about Jesus. He's talking about you. How was your week? Do you feel like you had a holy week? Were you ever impatient? Did you lie at all this week? Were you honest in everything you did? Was every thought and motive pure? And this text has the nerve to call you by the same term that we call Jesus. Sons of God. We are sons and daughters of God. God. And, and, and the idea there, I read it in that devotional, the idea is to intensify just how deeply God is committed to people like we are. Look, what the, look at this text. John 17. I don't think you guys have this, so don't panic. I just got it this morning. Oh, you got it? Wow, you guys are really good. We're doubling. Whatever you got paid, double. <laughs> Don't worry, it won't cost you much. <laughs> okay, John 17, back to this. 21 to 23, I want to show you something, how striking this is in the scripture. That, that we and Jesus get the same name. That's what I'm trying to show you. John 17, 21. Jesus is praying to the Father. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one, as the Father and Son are one. Look at this now. I am in them, and you are in me, so that they may be made completely one, that the world may know, and here is the unbelievable part. The world may know you have sent me and have loved them. How much does the Father love them? As you have loved me. There's the same idea in John's Gospel. How much does the Father love the Son? At least twice. At least twice. People hear. We can't imagine what this was like. We read it and we just gloss over it. They hear words spoken out of nowhere from nobody. They can't see anybody. And they hear actual speech, probably Aramaic, their own language. They hear this is my beloved son. In one case, listen to him. God, right from the invisible realm of heaven, in an audible voice, says to everyone, I love my son. I love my son. Now the son is praying and says to the father that the father loves Don Horbin, Don Horbin, 
like the Father loves the Son. I can't, get, I can't get my head around that. Maybe you have no trouble. I can't get my brain around that. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Oh, and I love, I love Don Horbin that much too. So, the same terminology, that's the first thing I wanted to bring out, used for Jesus, Son of God, as we his sons, all of us, heirs. The second thing Paul wants to make clear is that there's no longer any need for a temporary babysitter, that the law has served its purpose once it brought us to Christ. The seed promised to Abraham 430 years before the law was ever given. Point number two. Paul underscores, and I want to talk about this, the primary role of baptism in the initiation phase of the life of faith in Jesus Christ. For those of you who were baptized into Christ, have been clothed. I said there were two verbs. Clothed with Christ. If there are churches, and there are some churches, who, who teach... A lot of churches, Roman Catholicism especially, but a lot of other denominations as well, that when you sprinkle or baptize an infant, there's the removal, usually they mean of original sin. They don't mean that it will grow up never sinning at all, but the stain of original sin is removed at that moment. If there are churches that overplay and distort the significance of baptism, actually making it the means of salvation itself. If that's the case, and it is, but there are also many, many churches that underplay believers' baptism. So true enough, true enough, baptism doesn't save. I mean, the whole tone of this epistle would make no sense if Paul were saying, you're saved by faith in Jesus Christ plus nothing. It's not diet, it's not circumcision, none of that's necessary for salvation. What you really need is the waters of baptism. That makes no sense. But it's still, I think, necessary to, to just to point something else out. That word all, if you've got your Bible open, that word all, it's used to describe the same group of Christians that it described in verse 26. For through faith you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. And the important point to note here is that word all in verse 26 that's the same group he's talking about as being baptized in verse 27. All of you. All of you were baptized. I mean, it's difficult to argue from silence. I get it. But as far as we know, the only convert in the whole New Testament that wasn't baptized was the thief on the cross. He just didn't have time. For everyone else, baptism was virtually a part of the sequence in the conversion experience. It, it dramatized the events of redemption. Very significantly, in our text, verse 27, Paul, Paul talks about baptism as being clothed with Christ. We need to think about it. 
Baptism is not just an optional religious ritual. Baptism, as an expression of personal faith, it has, in Paul's mind, a great deal to do with how Christians get more deeply clothed with Christ Jesus. That's the term he uses. What does baptism mean? And how does it relate to being clothed with Christ? Well, A, negatively. Being baptized, being clothed with Christ, it means, it means putting off the old way of life in this world. When Paul talks about being clothed with Christ, he says stuff like this, Romans 13, 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's like being clothed. Baptism, he says, it's, it's a part of how a person is clothed with Christ Jesus. Well, Paul, what do you mean by clothed with Christ Jesus? And the first thing he means is, makes no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. My baptism... I was baptized when I was 12 years old. Getting baptized is easy. I have had, I have had uh, 54 years of struggle trying to live baptized. Baptism is the launching. Baptism is the inaugural act of repentance in a Christian's life. Not the last act, it's the launching. You know like when you launch a ship and they smash a champagne bottle into it and the ship is launched for the first time? That's what baptism is. It's launching something, starting something. And what it's starting is an ongoing life where you die to your own agenda. And you never do it just once. Baptism is, is the visible, outward fleshing out of the promise of an ongoing, thorough, instantaneous, repentant lifestyle. That's what I covenanted in my baptism. We're all to be baptized, all to be baptized, because Father God knows there will be times for Christians like we. There will be times when we just want to walk out of our marriage. My husband's angry and impatient. My wife is frigid. I'm not putting up with this anymore. Jesus didn't call me to live like this. We're all to be baptized because Father God knows there'll be mornings when it's minus 24 and getting up and starting the car and bundling everybody up and going to church. And I, I don't have time. I am too busy for church today. When almost everything else feels more logical than obeying Jesus, there will be times like that. And those are the times when baptism becomes important. When I was baptized, I covenanted before God and before hundreds of people that those desires do not set the agenda for my life anymore. That's what baptism is. If you don't see that in baptism, you don't get it. It isn't just, well, Joe's a Christian. Let's baptize him. 
It's the inaugural act repeated every minute I draw breath. My desires do not set the agenda of my life, even when they scream for fulfillment, because my baptism says I covenanted with God, those are buried. Now they keep clawing out of the grave. Getting baptized is easy. All you need is a change of clothes. Living baptized is what you do until you're in the box. Positively now. Being clothed with Christ means being so infused with his life that his character becomes, in time, his character becomes my own true self. Baptism participates, according to Paul, in this process of being clothed with Christ. The actual word, bapto, which means to dip or to dye. So you got a cloth, you put it in dye, and you change the whole color of it. It, it, it fits pretty well, doesn't it, with this image Paul uses of being clothed with Jesus Christ. Our lives become just indelibly stained with Christ's own life. That's what he's talking about in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. That's the going down into the water. That's what that pictures. And I no longer live. Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. This life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You just, you just see Paul's reminder to these Galatian Gentile Christians. It's not enough just to be baptized. You have to live baptized. Their baptism in the past has to constantly reach into the present. Remembering, a holy remembering about baptism. Point number three. Paul pictures the unity and the distinctiveness that exists among members of the body of Christ. This church right here. The unity that exists. Yes, people who are vaccinated, people who aren't vaccinated, and each one thinks the other is a hoax. You know all that stuff. Arguably, arguably, Christians have not liked each other as much since the invention of social media. Christians have not liked each other as much since social media. But Paul talks about a unity that exists. It exists, he talks about it in chapter 3, verse 28. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, Male or female, since you are, you are all one in Christ Jesus. The words have been abused, certainly, throughout church history. We need to be clear on what Paul is saying and what he isn't saying. So, A, the unity that 
Paul describes is a unity of access to salvation in Jesus Christ. We can all become children of Abraham. We can all become heirs of the promise of justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ. This has been the burden of the whole letter, and, and Paul's putting the capstone on it right here. Neither ethnicity, social standing, gender, none of it has any effect on receiving the promise of justification through faith alone. None of those categories gains or loses any advantage in the body of Christ. And everyone said, good thing. That's what you're supposed to say. Good thing. <laughs> but B... Paul was not saying that these distinctions no longer existed in this world. We know that because all you have to do is read the book of Acts and see where many times Paul proudly wore the flag of his Jewish heritage when he was being tried. At least one place in the New Testament clearly states that gender distinctives, there's two, by the way, male and female, that they're a permanent feature of life for Christians and non-Christians alike in this present age. I get that, by the way. For in the resurrection, this is Jesus, in the resurrection, they will neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. But that's then, right? So what he's saying is before the resurrection and the new creation, there's male and female. Just two. See, while these distinctions do exist, they're never to be a source of mistreatment or division in the body of Christ. Just to be clear, the kind of unity, you're all one in Christ, the kind of unity Paul is describing, it's not a man-made unity. It's not an ecumenical unity. I hear it every once in a while. Oh boy, if only we didn't have all these denominations and churches, we'd have just one truly spiritual church. And I don't think we would, and I don't think history bears that out. What you'd end up with would be a state church. That's what you'd end up with. The Presbyterian church in Scotland, the Lutheran church in Germany. You'd end, you'd end up with state-run churches where the government controls the church. The unity Paul is talking about isn't an ecumenical unity, a political, organized, structural unity. It's organic. It's created through a participation of the life of Christ. Consider these words. We're almost done. Ephesians 4, 14 through 16. Then we will no longer be little children, tossed by the waves, blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning, with cleverness in the techniques of deceit. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. From him, the whole body, fitted together, Every supporting ligament promotes the growth of the body for the building itself up in love by the proper working of each individual part. Here's the kind of unity Paul pictures in the church. If the church is a body, and if Christ is the head, that's what he says, 
And if we are all of us, parts, parts of the body, then the only distinction that can exist among the parts is, is function, like the parts of a body. Not all of the parts of my body are the same. There's a difference between prominence. This is important. There's a difference in, between prominence and importance. Look at my thumb. Now, that, church, that's a beautiful thumb. You can see it. I've also got a liver, and you can't see it. My thumb is more prominent. My liver is more important. So in the body, we shouldn't confuse prominence with importance. And Paul's point is in, in Christ, here's the, only, here's, the only, here's the only distinction that exists in the body of Christ. We're all attached to the head, Christ, and we all have different functions, but we're all equally parts of the body. All equally parts of the body. There are no favorites. Last point, point number four. After saying there's no distinction, Paul says there is one thing that matters. There's one distinction that's really important. Point number four, the only distinction that matters both now and eternally. It's in the 29th verse. Do you see it? Read those words with me. If you belong to Christ. All bets are off without that. The Bible, I shouldn't have to say it, but the Bible nowhere endorses the idea that we, just as human beings, are all children of God. It, that gets a lot of mileage in pop songs. It just doesn't come from the Bible. The idea of the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man has no roots in the Christian scriptures. None. So having just outlined how the distinction, so honored by this world, they, have, they don't factor into salvation. And they don't factor into the church. Paul now moves on to the one distinction that is eternally sharp, eternally discriminating. Faith in Jesus Christ. God the Son. Here's the place where distinction counts. In God's eyes, forever. This is the one thing that differentiates. This is the one thing that separates. This is the one thing that divides all of humanity. If believers are in Christ, and if Christ is Abraham's seed, then believers, Jew, Gentile, male, female, are also Abraham's seed, heirs of the promise, which is justification by faith. And so Paul just welds this unbreakable chain between justification before God and faith in Jesus Christ. And that's the message that both uh, rejoices the church and commissions the church. This is what we celebrate 
And this is what we have to do.